I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> The only thing we have to fear is fear Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Hello and welcome to a very special 10 American Presidents podcast. Um, This show is going to feature no American Presidents, well, kind of. There's going to be a little bit of Barack Obama, a tiny bit of Truman, and a little bit of the two Bushes. But fundamentally, this show features me talking to my great friend Michael Goldwasser and also features the life of General Colin Powell. And hopefully, um, by the end of that section of the show, you'll realise the reasons why I've put it into this podcast. Hi, this is General Colin Powell. I'm speaking from my home in McLean, Virginia, just outside of Washington. I served 40 years in the government, 35 years as a soldier, to include becoming chairman of the American Joint Chiefs of Staff, and four years as Secretary of State. My 
My parents came to the United States from Jamaica, my father in 1920, my mother in 1924. Both proverbially came on United Fruit Company boats, banana boats as they might call them. They met in New York, married a few years after they arrived. Two children came of that marriage. I am the youngest of the two. My sister Marilyn was a teacher for many, many years. Harlem, northern fringe of New York's Manhattan, is accustomed to strange sensations. But a new kind of sensation. Harlem was an exciting place at the time, and I didn't live there very long until I was two years old when we moved to the South Bronx section of New York City. But the neighborhood in the South Bronx was not terribly different from our neighborhood in Harlem. You've had a lot of immigrant families in the community. It was high-rise tenement buildings. In those days, high-rise meant six floors. I had a very pleasant upbringing, playing with my fellow buddies in the street, most of whom were from immigrant backgrounds. So I grew up in this close, warm environment of the Anglican Church, of a good public school system, of parents who cared for their children. They essentially said, we have expectations for you. Getting an education is how you do well. There's no question about you finishing school. There's no question about you getting into college and seeing what you can do there. And above all, don't do anything that shames the family. They also brought with them from Jamaica a belief in education, and proper use of the English language, even though sometimes I couldn't understand some of my aunts. They worked as laborers in the garment industry for the most part. Didn't make a great deal of money, but enough to put food on the table, clothes on our back. Uh, we never wanted for anything. And they were always sharing with the people back home, as they would always call it, in Jamaica by sending things there, sending money. Or the old Jamaican expression was to pack a barrel, put things into a barrel and ship it off to Jamaica for the people in need. I had lots of Jamaican cousins, aunts, and uncles sprinkled all through Bronx and in Queens and still in Harlem and many in Canada and the United Kingdom as well. What that family gave to me and my sister and all of the cousins in my family was a sense of belonging, sense of expectation. These people came here to this country to do better and to see their children do even better. When I think about Jamaican culture, the music is always uppermost. I'm a great fan of Bob Marley, Brian Lee and the Dragonairs, and all of those more contemporary performers. But in my youth, it was Calypso, straight art Calypso, with Lord Kitchener, Lord Melody, the Mighty Sparrow, and many, many others from those days. And what I remember so vividly about the music was that we always had a big party on New Year's Eve, and all these old 78 RPM records would come out. And while I was still uh, young, say, before 10 or 10 to 14 years old, not being terribly sophisticated about the world yet, I used to wonder what they were all laughing at when some of these songs were played that they understood perfectly, but I didn't quite get the double entendre yet. It was a moment that changed the course of American history. July 26, 1948, President Harry Truman signed an executive order effectively integrating the United States military. We have reached a turning point in the long history of our country's effort to guarantee freedom and equality to all our citizens. 
As I went through school, I wasn't the best student. I wasn't slow by any means, really. I just wasn't that committed. My grades reflected it. But I managed to get through high school with no difficulty, but with a, a very average grade. And I entered the wonderful place called the City College of New York, uh, which has been taking in poor and immigrant kids for 160 years and turning them into educated citizens. I found ROTC. ROTC stands for the Reserve Officer Training Corps. It's our cadet program to create young lieutenants for the armed forces. I found another family, so to speak. Having left my inner city neighborhood and going to college now every day, I had a family at the college consisting of my fellow ROTC cadets and a military way of life, which in some ways gave me the same discipline and structure as I was getting at home, and I loved it. I graduated college. I was offered a regular commission as a regular officer in the Army of the United States as an infantry second lieutenant, and I accepted it, not knowing where it would take me. My parents thought I should just serve my time and come out, but I really, really fell in love with being a soldier, and it was an interesting time. We had just come out of the era of segregation in the armed forces, and I was really in the first generation of officers who were not faced with segregation in the ranks. Communities around us may still be segregated, but the Army wasn't. We were perhaps the most progressive social institution in America back there in the 50s. 35 years later, I retired as a four-star general. And I finally got my immigrant parents to go along with my staying in the Army. I love to tell the story about my relatives saying, when are you coming out? You've been to Vietnam twice, you've been hurt both times. Why aren't you coming out? And I finally persuaded my more pushy aunts that if I stayed in, I could retire at age 41 with a 50% pension for life. And they said, stay in. And that was a great immigrant goal to get a pension for life of some kind. The town of Vinh Lin, just inside the border of North Vietnam, was struck today by U.S. and South Vietnamese planes. One South Vietnamese plane was lost, however, the pilot parachuted safely. And the Soviet news agency TASS claims that three U.S. planes were lost. Uh, in 1962, I was sent to Vietnam by President Kennedy in order to participate with the South Vietnamese forces in resisting a communist takeover that was driven from Hanoi, the north of the Vietnamese capital. Uh, it was the beginning of a long engagement that the United States had in Vietnam, which finally ended in 1975. Uh, I was proud to go. I was proud to try to help the South Vietnamese, but the nature of the conflict changed over the years. And as we all know, the North Vietnamese prevailed. After I entered the Army, my career was pretty straightforward for an infantry officer. I served in Germany for two years initially. I served in Vietnam for two years. I served in Korea for a year, doing the things that infantry officers are supposed to do, command platoons and battalions, and commanding a brigade back here in the United States. Then my career started to take different track as I found myself being given positions of importance in essentially the civilian part of our government. Working for Secretary of Defense as a military assistant, I had a White House fellowship which allowed me to work in our Office of Management and Budget and to travel around the world. And then slowly but surely, as I advanced both in my military rank and in my experience in civilian activities, I was selected to be National Security Advisor to President Ronald Reagan. And I served as his National Security Advisor, which is his principal White House foreign 
foreign policy and national security advisor for the last two years of his administration, from fall of 1987 until early 1989 when he stepped down from office. After leaving President Reagan, I then returned to the Army and was given more senior positions. And finally, in the fall of 1989, that very same year that I left President Reagan, I was selected to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and served in that position for four years. I am very proud of this team and proud to add Colin Powell to it. Colin, welcome, sir. Thank you, Mr. President, for your very kind words, and thank you, sir, for this new opportunity to serve you, to serve the men and women of the armed forces, and to serve our nation. Very pleased to be joining your national security team. I tried to do a good job in every uh, position I was sent to, and I was rated highly by my superiors. They sent me to a number of graduate schools, both military and civilian, to give me a deeper grounding in politics and military strategy and things of that nature. So I just worked hard, and people kept advancing me. I also think that because I was black, I was a minority, and it was such a progressive social institution, I may well have gotten uh, advantages in promotion and otherwise that uh, uh, my superiors thought were appropriate. But people who say to me, well, did you benefit from affirmative action? My answer is, I don't know, maybe I did. But it wasn't how I got into a job that was important, it's what I did with that job. And so whether I got it because of performance or whether I got it because someone thought, hmm, maybe we ought to have somebody like Powell in that position, the only thing I cared about and what I always focused on is not how did I get this job, but how do I do it to the best of my ability. And the reason I kept moving up is because I always did it, I think, to the best of my ability and my superiors thought the same thing. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd, when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait... And ladies and, and gentlemen, uh, I know you all heard the, the speech a short time ago by the president. And while there is not a great deal we can add now, uh, we did want to be as forthcoming as we can with you. At 7 o'clock tonight, as you all know by now, uh, Eastern Time, 3 o'clock Thursday morning in the Gulf, the armed forces of the United States began an operation at the direction of the president to force Saddam Hussein to withdraw his troops from Kuwait and to end his occupation of that country. We'd be happy to respond to a few questions. Can you describe uh, the Iraqi Air Force's resistance, if any, their losses so far, and to what extent do you think that you've already achieved uh, air superiority there? Well, the operation's only uh, two and a half hours old, so I'm not quite prepared to take on your second question. So far, there has been no air resistance. Any casualties so far? We, uh, how would you uh, rate this army you faced the, from the Republican Guard on down? Rating an army is a tough thing to do. A great deal of, of the capability of, the, of an army is its dedication to its cause and its will to fight. You're going to have the best equipment in the world, but if you're not dedicated to your cause, then you're not going to have a very good army. So many people were deserting that the Iraqis brought down execution squads whose job was to shoot people. I got to Shortly tell you after what, I became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we were faced with a crisis in Kuwait because the Iraq 
Iraqi leadership under Saddam Hussein decided to invade its neighbor. President Bush was determined to reverse that aggression, and he assembled a large international coalition of nations. We all came together under the field leadership of General Schwarzkopf, a brilliant officer. Uh, we succeeded in reversing that aggression and kicking the Iraqi army out of Kuwait, which was our objective. Lots of discussion as to whether we should have continued to Baghdad, but that was not the mission that we had from our Congress, from our president, or from the international coalition that had been assembled. General Schwarzhoff and I became fairly well known during that period, and the way that worked is he was in command of the operation, but he reported through me to the Secretary of Defense. So I was really his day-to-day -day supervisor, and we worked very, very closely. Interesting story in that he came from a somewhat privileged family. He was a West Pointer. I was not a West Pointer. My family were immigrant folks from Jamaica living in New York City. But notwithstanding these cultural and other differences between Norm and myself, we became the best of friends, and we worked in a collaborative manner to be successful in that first war and everything else we worked on together. Kuwait is liberated. Iraq's army is defeated. Our military objectives are met. Kuwait is once more in the hands of Kuwaitis in control of their own destiny. Tonight, the Kuwaiti flag once again flies above the capital of a free and sovereign nation. Desert Storm was a highly regarded operation, and I think the American people and people around the world thought that it was a very, very successful combat operation, one of the largest since World War II. After that, I had a great deal of time, and I needed to find a way to bring down the size of the United States Armed Forces because the Soviet Union had gone away, disappeared. And we'd been planning on having a fight with the Soviet Union for 50 years, and it was not going to be the case. So we made the, the Army smaller. It was one of the most challenging leadership positions uh, I've ever been in, and not just the Army, but the Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps as well. Uh, and then finally, uh, I left the Army in the fall of 1993 and entered civilian life, writing a uh, memoir, which was fairly well received. It came out in 1995, and uh, going on the speaking circuit and getting involved in various business interests. I put the Army really behind me. I wanted to move into new things. And a great deal of attention was still focused on me in 1995 when it was suggested by some that I should run for the presidency or enter political Good life. Good evening and welcome to the first New Hampshire Citizens for Colin Powell for President. Our purpose is to provide you a vehicle for you to participate directly in our grassroots effort to persuade Colin Powell to enter the 1996 presidential race. What's the big thing this year? Election. Colin Powell. He should run. He could win. Colin could win. He should run. He can't win. Colin Powell can't win. Colin Powell got a better chance of winning the bronze in female gymnastics <laughs> than being the president of the United States. White people ain't voting for Colin Powell. Say they are. They are not. After giving it a great deal of thought, that is not what I thought was right for me or for my family, and I declined to run for the presidency. Good afternoon. An important announcement is expected from Colin Powell in just a few minutes. Sources say Powell has decided not to run for president. ABC News will carry the announcement live. But saying at the same time, I would find other ways to serve my country because I believe I owed my country so much. And so I threw myself into youth programs and volunteer efforts, programs that would assist youngsters, particularly minority youngsters living in our inner city areas, find the path to the future that I found living in an inner city community. And for the next few years, 
That's what I focused on. Every 26 seconds, a teenager drops out of high school in this country. It is a shocking statistic that sheds light on a nationwide crisis, one that General Colin Powell and his wife Alma are determined to combat. They've launched a new initiative to keep kids in school called Grad Nation, and they join us now. Thank you so very much, ladies and gentlemen, for that very, very, very warm welcome. My fellow Americans, my fellow Republicans. I am honored to be with you. And then to my surprise uh, and delight, I was invited by President George W. Bush to be Secretary of State. Many times during the course of my campaign, I said that if all went well, General Colin Powell just might be called back into the service of his country. Today, it is my privilege to make that call and ask him to become the 65th Secretary of State of the United States of America. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Dumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. Washington, where I am going to check in with Secretary of State Colin Powell. Sir, can you hear me? Yes. I know you have said that the attacks yesterday constituted an act of war, and the United States will treat this as if it is a war. What does that mean? It means that we'll use our full resources to go after those who are responsible for this. And it is not uh, an action that will be over in a week or two. This has got to be a full-scale assault, not just by the United States, but by the civilized community against terrorism. Mr. President, Mr. Secretary General, distinguished colleagues, I would like to begin by expressing my thanks for the special effort that each of you made to be here today. This is an important day for us all as we review the situation with respect to Iraq and its disarmament obligations under... UN Security Council Resolution 1441. Last November 8th, this council passed Resolution 1441 by unanimous vote. The purpose of that resolution was to disarm Iraq of its weapons of mass destruction. Iraq had already been found guilty of material breach of its obligations stretching back over 16 previous resolutions and 12 years. Resolution 1441 was not dealing with an innocent party but a regime this council has repeatedly convicted over the years. Resolution 1441 gave Iraq one last chance, one last chance to come into compliance or to face serious consequences. No council member present in voting on that day. Had Every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. The reality is that I was using the intelligence information that was given to the president, to our senior commanders, to the Congress and everyone else, and we all accepted it and believed that it was correct. But mine was the most visible presentation of that information, and it turned out that uh, we had it wrong. 
got a lot done in those four years. Although most people focus on Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of other things were accomplished having to do with HIV-AIDS programs, having to do with expanding NATO, having to do with signing a treaty to reduce nuclear weapons with the Russian Federation. But Iraq and Afghanistan are the focus of the administration as people look at the administration. And of course, my famous speech to the UN talking about the weapons of mass destruction that we thought Iraq had has become uh, very, very well known. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. As you know from the White House announcement earlier today, I submitted my resignation as Secretary of State to President Bush on Friday. It has been my great honor and privilege to have been given the opportunity to serve my nation, and I will always treasure the four years that I have spent with President Bush and with the wonderful men and women of the Department of State. From NBC News, Decision 2008. Well, last year you gave a campaign contribution to Senator McCain. You have met twice at least with Barack Obama. Are you prepared to make a public declaration of which of these two candidates that you're prepared to support? I watched Mr. Obama, and he displayed a steadiness, an intellectual curiosity, a depth of knowledge, and an approach to looking at problems like this and picking a vice president that I think is ready to be president on day one. Uh, Mr. Obama, at the same time, has given us a more inclusive, broader reach into the needs and aspirations of our people. Now back to General Powell. I, I, I just want to button this up because the drive-bys had a tizzy over my allegation that his nomination was about race. It, well, let me say it louder. And let me say it even more plainly. It was totally about race. Well, also, before I, uh, we begin, I, I'd like to acknowledge some news that we learned this morning. With, with, so many, with so many brave men and women from Fayetteville who are serving in our military. This is a city and a state that knows something about great soldiers. And this morning, a great soldier, a great statesman, a great American has endorsed our campaign for change. So, General, I'd like you to be very specific and I'd like to be very brutal tonight about the Republican Party. What is it that you object to mostly that caused you to vote for President Obama twice? I voted for the president twice because, first and foremost, I didn't think that the economic plans suited for the times we were in, so I had an economic reason to do that. Secondly, I became a Republican officially in 1995 after I decided not to run, but in the last several years, I have been troubled by the right shift of the Republican Party, and I've said this on a number of occasions, and so in 2008, I found that as an American was Senator Obama and then uh, now President Obama okay. re-elected. President Obama's economic plan hasn't worked among African-Americans. When you voted for him, 12.7 unemployment. December 2012, a month after you voted for him again, 14% unemployment. Up. Income. Black income, $32,000 compared to white, $55,000. Gone down under President Obama. Hasn't worked. Even though his economic policies haven't worked for African-Americans and pretty much anyone else. Why are you only seeing me as an African-American, Bill? That because you did beside it. You did beside it, though. No, I know that. 
America has uh, gone through a lot over the last 50 years. The one thing we can be very proud of is the fact that increasingly the color of your skin, your background, your ethnicity, your sexual preferences, your gender means less and less. And the uh, election of 2012 in the United States demonstrated, I think, that people who are different, who reflect this great diversity of our country, are having more and more of a say in the future of the country. We are the most diverse nation in the world. We bring in immigrants wave after wave and have for our whole history and make them Americans. Unlike other places in the world where you can never become a citizen of that country. In America, they come here never forgetting where they came from. My parents always called Jamaica home, but America was their new home. And uh, very few countries in the world can say that they have a way of integrating these floods of immigrants into their society, the way that America takes them in and makes them Americans, but does not ask them to forget where they came from. It is a continuing process in this country. It's what's going to make this country 50% minority majority in another generation. Most of our citizens, 50% plus, will be of this kind of diversity. And you want to know something? America can handle it. We can handle it because we've always handled it in the past. And anybody who thinks that we are not the same America don't understand us. My focus now is still on the future. I'm still speaking, just wrote another book, and still spending more and more time with youth programs. One youth program that I'm very happy about takes me right back to Harlem, to the City College of New York, where I'm now considered one of the successes of the City College of New York. And I now have a center and a school named after me, the Golden Powell School for Leadership and Service. I'm working with new generations of immigrants, new generations of people of modest income, and letting them know that there's a path to the future. Given me a very, very successful life. Just passed my 50th anniversary of marriage and I have three wonderful children and four wonderful grandchildren. And I never forget that it all started with two short people, very, very short people who came to Ellis Island and the Port of Philadelphia back in the 1920s. Uh, Royfield, that was, it was very interesting to hear a bit of uh, Colin Powell, but I'm wondering why you're playing that in 10 American presidents. I think I decided to play that for, for a couple of reasons. Number one is that we, America has its first African-American president. And though Colin Powell is a Jamaican-American to all intents and purposes, as far as most Americans are concerned, he's an African-American. And he, though there had been other people that tried to seek the nomination to be, the, let's say, the, the president of the United States, like Jesse Jackson, he was the f he could have been a serious candidate in a way that Jackson was never going to be, and and I thought that he here is a life of American duty played out so much in the public eye. You know, his war record, then being the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then kind of pivotal moment in 1995 where he was asked to run and he did want to run. That I thought it's an interesting kind of supplemental to the way that um, American history could have actually turned out to be. But then also, it kind of demonstrates my, the, my love of American history. And I did that for my series, How Jamaica Conquered the World. And I, I just kind of realized, you know, in hindsight, that a lot of the production techniques are very similar to the Nixon show. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, Nixon's is passed on, so I couldn't get Nixon on. But in terms of using archive clips and music to set, the, set a tone, it's kind of very similar to 10 American presidents. Uh, and um, all the more reason why maybe we should try and get Barack Obama on so we can do a show which has that level of intimacy.
Um, my name is Kate. My name's Joe. My name's Nicola. My name is Suzanne Hakimi. My name is Mary Parkinson. I'm in Hope House as a client. Um, I have had addiction issues um, throughout Hope my House, life, um, um, including an eating disorder, heroin, crack, um, addiction drink, to drugs, methadone, and alcohol. I'm here because it got really bad. Hope House started off as an eight-bed unit in Maida Vale, and um, we're an all-women unit. I had read an article about Hope House some months before, and when I read about it, what I read or what I took away from the article was that this was a place where women worked to help other women. Coming soon to iTunes, 1001 Conversations, a new podcast from Royfield Brown. As Washington is coming down from Boston to New York, back in the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia, the delegates have decided that the time has come to really decide what it is that this war is all about. Are we simply resisting sort of our our mother government? Are we subjects in sort of rebellion to try to get our way? Or are we actually going for something more? Or is this a war truly of independence? Are we going to try to break away? There is a whole long fascinating debate about whether or not they should break away. But in the end, the feeling in the Second Continental Congress is we need to declare independence to give the war a purpose and then hopefully give us some sort of standing with the other European powers who might be opposed to Britain uh, so that we can try to enlist their help. Specifically, they're thinking here about the French, that if they try to break away, that'll give them more of an argument with the French to get the French involved in helping them. Uh, with money, men, and guns. So when Washington is in New York, he gets the Declaration of Independence and he gathers up his men and he reads it aloud. So now they have this thing that they're fighting for. And this is going to be something that really does help Washington keep the Continental Army coherent through what is about to become a series of disasters that really losing means losing independence. Losing means losing a country that we are now going to try to be forging. So the Americans are always going to have this really simple thing that they're fighting for, and that's independence. This is going to be in opposition to the British, who are fighting, you know, to try to keep some people in line. Most of their guys are, you know, sort of mercenary fighters. What are we really doing here? Is this, they're doing cost-benefit analyses of whether or not it's worth it to keep fighting. The Americans are always just going to have this very simple idea, independence, and that's what we're fighting for. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Pennsylvania Evening Post, 6th July, 1776. In Congress, July 4, 1776, a declaration by the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one person to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to one another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to Hi, this is Michael Goldwasser from New York City, and I am primarily known as a record producer and songwriter. You may know me from my album Dub Side of the Moon and also my latest R&B project, Gold Swagger. But I'm also a history enthusiast. So I was very delighted to find the 10 American Presidents podcast by Royfield Brown. And I am lucky enough to be speaking to Royfield right now. And I'm going to ask him some questions about his podcast. So first of all, Royfield, why did you get into podcasting? I'm a frustrated broadcaster. I, back in the day, oh God, it's, it's another millennium ago, I was actually a TV producer. So my broadcasting claim to fame is that Sasha Baron Cohen, I was one of his first ever producers and directors when he was on uh, cable TV in the UK before he hit fame as Ali G. So I have the these chops, so to speak. 
Uh, but for some 15 years, I didn't do anything in broadcasting, but I love media. And podcasting allows kind of just about anyone to get their voice out there. So that's how I got into podcasting, listening to Dan Carlin and to Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and to Free Economics Radio. I just fell in love with the intimate world of people talking just to you. So can we expect to hear Sasha Baron Cohen narrating one of your podcasts? (laughs) Gerald Ford, perhaps. (laughs) He would actually probably do a very good job. One of the amazing things about Sasha is that apart from just being funny, he's incredibly well-read and knows a lot about a lot. However, I don't think I could afford to get him to narrate one of my podcasts anytime Mm. soon now. He's moved into another stratosphere. Yes. So I've noticed that your podcasts are not the standard history podcast that I've heard before because you include a lot of music and especially interesting to me, the archival clips that, that are from the time period that you're discussing. So why do you use this approach? Because I love history, but for me, uh, my love of history came from watching TV. I remember as a little kid, there was The World at War, which had Lawrence Olivier n- narrating it. And what really brought alive to me uh, the world at war was the fact that it was all these old grainy clips of, of the Second World War. Now, when I listen to a traditional history podcast, it's, it's like a personable lecture. And that's great. But I know that for a lot of people, they got turned off by that traditional way of telling the history story, the history narrative. Now, one of the great things about somebody like Dan Carlin is that He has a very personal way of speaking, gives you great insight, ditto with Mike Duncan. But I don't have those skills. My skill is actually in production. And so really what I wanted to create is something which is a little bit different from the the traditional history narrative, where if you're not necessarily into history or into politics, you might be able to get swept along with the audio experience. So for me, what I'm trying to create is cinema for the ears. And I'm really conscious of that fact. You know, sometimes I get it right, sometimes I don't. But it's cinema for the ears. And I want to place the listener very much at the time and the place of that story. So the pacing of the Nixon show is very different to the Washington show because it's a completely different era. Right. Well, I, th- I think you do a great job of bringing the listener into that, that era. Uh, I'm curious, how does a black guy from Birmingham, England, get into American politics? I've always been into politics through my love of history. Even as a little kid, I was at the age of like nine. I remember being incredibly excited about the British general election and things like that. But it was my my grandfather lived in New Orleans and he emigrated to America in about 1970. So I didn't actually really ever know him, didn't actually really meet him properly until 1996. Uh, And I went to see him in New Orleans. And I went when when that plane hit uh, the New Orleans airport and I drove to his home. And I listened to, and I realised now it was actually Rush Limbaugh. I just <laughs> couldn't believe what I was hearing. Um, you just don't hear in UK media, in UK broadcast media, such partisan stuff. You just don't hear it. But it was incredibly exciting. You know, Bill Clinton was the president at the time, and he said the president is a liar, is a fraud. And I thought, how can you broadcast this stuff? And my fascination with American politics really started then, listening to Rush Limbaugh. I I hate to say it, but it's Rush Limbaugh that really dragged me in. And then it was 
the 2000 election with the fact that um, Al Gore really should have won that election but was kind of denied it. Then we fast forward, it was Hurricane Katrina because I had that personal link and the fact that the president at the time, Bush, seemed so inept and just couldn't respond and the, we the rest of the world was shocked. Uh, and then I saw you know, my grandfather's town literally underwater. But really what switched me on was the election uh, in 2008 where Obama was running against McCain. And that's when, for me, the America of the uh, you know of great hope and aspiration kind of collided with reality that here is somebody whose skin color and his background wasn't one of white privilege for want of a better expression but he had a really good shot at becoming president and he didn't just inspire a certain section of americans but he inspired so many people around the globe and that's when i really said there is something incredibly special and unique about America and its politics. So that's how I got into it. Very good. So what led you to decide to start this podcast about 10 American presidents? So I've done quite a few podcasts now. The first one that I seriously did was a thing called How Jamaica Conquered the World, which is how I met you. And, and I think my template there for my style kind of was formed there. Um, I'm of Jamaican parentage, uh, but I very much uh, somebody who's English and British. But I really wanted to do something around American politics. And I have had a stab at this before. So I did do a thing called Mid-Atlantic, where I compared and contrasted American news with UK news. And that was a fairly successful podcast. But I just wanted to do something kind of quite meaty. And I didn't want to stray too much into contemporary politics. So I, it didn't take too much, too long for me, I should say, to come up with the idea of 10 American presidents. And actually, it took me over a year from interviewing Dan to actually cutting the show together. It was probably about 18 months, much to my uh, embarrassment. So the idea has been knocking around for, for quite some time. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I, why I did this is because so many podcasts, history podcasts anyway, are of European history but they're by American podcasters. And I said, well, there's an opportunity here for somebody to do a podcast about American presidents. Uh, so there's a gap in the market. I loved American history, American politics. It just, it just made sense to do it. So I know that a lot of people are probably curious about your production process. How do you decide uh, which narrator to work with for an episode, uh, how much leeway does the narrator have to tell the story from their perspective, how do you choose uh, the music that you're going to use in each episode, where do you find the the archival recordings or things like that? Could you could you speak to that? Sure. So I went to Dan, Dan Carling, who did the Nixon episode, because I listened to one of his podcasts, a thing called common sense and he talked about a couple of years ago about the fact that he was sat down um, in the fourth grade and forced to listen to the Watergate hearings by his teachers they said this is so important that kids you just need to watch this and he said we didn't really understand what was going on at all you know we were little kids what you know why would we so when I decided, right, I'm going to do this 10 American presidents, I went to Dan and it was really around that hook. 
I knew that Dan, he is in a preeminent, not just a podcaster, but kind of broadcaster now, because he's, he's appeared on so much, so, so much other media. And I thought he'd be a great way of starting the series. And, you know, I think the results kind of speak for itself. He's an amazing speaker. He's got great insight. And he, and he really brought to life the context of Nixon's presidency and his political career. Um, with, with Mike Duncan, um, I just emailed him. It's as simple as that. And then because now the, the series is starting to get a little bit of success, people are now coming to me. Uh, but also on my Facebook group, 10 American Presidents, people have actually recommended uh, people for me actually to approach. So there are some great narrators coming up in the future, which I'm really looking forward to working working with. So um, that's kind of how that works. And then so the, the actual process in terms of the narration, it's quite simple. I say to the narrator, you give me your version of this president. Now, obviously, the further back you go in history, the more, let's say, standard, in inverted commas, that version of that president tends to be. So I don't think Mike said anything too controversial about Washington, whereas Dan's version of Nixon is somewhat kind of revisionist in that he says that, and he's not the first person to say this, but, you know, Nixon wasn't such a bad guy. He got caught out with his kind of snooping, but Johnson did snooping as well, though Dan didn't actually say that Johnson did, but we all know that Johnson had a similar kind of taping thing there. So I say to them, you go and you give me your version of this president. How it all hangs together is, though, as the producer, I kind of see myself as really conducting that conversation. So I have an understanding of the outline of that president's uh, life, their public life, their key achievements, so I ask those questions and then edit myself out of that process. So I still have a lot of sway with, with the direction, but really it's their version of that president. So we conduct the conversations over uh, always two days. And I always say for two days because they get tired, I get tired. And I think specifically with Mike, we probably did just under three hours worth of recording to come up with a two-hour show so of course he mentally gets tired I get I get tired but then it also gives us time to reflect when we come back onto the second day and he might say well I, thinking about it I don't think I answered this question correctly so it gives us time to go back gives me time to listen also uh, to what we've done see if there's any kind of obvious gaps and then we wrap up on, on that second day. And then what I like to do is just put the recording to one side and almost kind of forget about it. And then um, how I did Dan Carlin was very different to, um, to Mike's in that with Dan's, I broke it down into his specific answers, which in hindsight, I didn't really need to do. Whereas with Mike, I have the whole of the recording and I take out the thinking room, obviously myself, and I listen to it. I took out the ums and the ahs. Though listening back, there's still there's still a few of those because um, that's just a, a, a natural part of speech. Because I want this to be very conversational. You know, it's not a lecture, and that plays up to the medium of the podcast that people are listening to this when they're walking, when they're jogging, when they're cooking, when they're driving, 
and you want Mike Duncan or Dan Carling or whoever is narrating to talk specifically, to have a conversation with you, the listener. But, you know, I do take a ums and ahs and you knows. So that takes a lot of time. So you've got to listen to it and listen to it again. Then I try and match music with with the period. Now, with Nixon, it, it was much easier because Nixon's public life was in a time when there was recorded popular music. With Washington, it was harder. Though the first kind of... Uh, when Mike talks about the America that Washington was born into, there is a little bit of Baroque-influenced music. Um, then you just try and match music to the tone of, of what the event is. Though, because I try and be creative, sometimes I do try and kind of push the envelope. And I know in, in the Washington episode, a few people did con complain about a, sp a specific piece of music which had some electronic bleeps in it, which was very orchestral, but um, was maybe... Uh, it threw some people out of thinking that they were in the 18th century somewhat. So I'm kind of aware that the music is there to set the tone, but then also to create an atmosphere as well. And sometimes I try and deliberately make that slightly discordant. Some, you know, sometimes I'll introduce beatbox, you know, human beatbox music, but it's always got to enhance uh, the the spoken narrative. Uh, and for the most part, I think it works. Sometimes, maybe I'll try and push the envelope a little bit too far, but what you've got to do when you put it together is listen, listen again, then listen again. And what I try and do is take myself out of the room wherever I'm editing and maybe listen to a recording whilst I'm out jogging or in the gym. And then you'll, you'll hear things in, in a very different way. How I get the archive clips, um, there's no great secret there, but it's YouTube which, you know, YouTube is just this, an amazing resource, not just of uh, cat videos and, uh, and, and nonsense like that and, and, and pop promos. But if you really dig into it, there is just about every uh, world incident, famous celebrity, politician, just about every speech going um, is on there if you have the wit to try and find it, if you can figure out what those search terms will be. You know, I've found some old recordings of um, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, who sound like, incredibly like they've recorded on scratchy bits of wax vinyl, you know, but it's there and it's just incredibly evocative. So I did, I dig deep into YouTube for those. But obviously with the, with the Washington show, you couldn't get bits of, you can get audio clips of George Washington actually speaking. So... In lots of ways, um, I was less happy with that because of that. But what I did do is then get uh, listeners from the Facebook group to read out contemporaneous newspapers of Washington's time and to give that kind of sense of, of context. And then I did cheat. There's a great HBO John Adams miniseries a few years back and there are couple of clips, maybe three clips, two or three clips, which I, I kind of uh, lifted from there. So um, hopefully HBO won't come after me and uh, for copyright. Well, now they will, since you just admitted it. Well, isn't it fair use? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so.
Well, that, that's all very fascinating. And, um, you know, I, I would have loved to have heard uh, beatboxing on the George Washington one done by someone who had wooden teeth like George Washington, <laughs> just to see how that would have sounded. But would you ever consider having people contribute to the show, actually have their voices on the show who lived during a certain presidency? Say people, if you're doing FDR, you find some elderly Americans who were young adults at the time of FDR's presidency and have them speak on him just to kind of change up the format. Absolutely. And, and actually, one of the, for me, the exciting things about doing this project is that the format is going to be, is going to subtly change from president to president. So um, there's no contemporaneous recordings of Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln. Of course. So those shows tonally are going to be very differently. They're going to be di very different in terms of the substance. You know, we're going to have to read uh, newspaper reports. When you get to um, definitely from, from an FDR onwards, but let's say a Reagan onwards, we're still really making our minds up as to what their legacy really is. And actually, what I plan to do for the uh, Reagan show is to have two narrators there. The narrators haven't been picked, but one of them which is right of centre, the one which is left of centre. Uh, so you'll have these two people kind of saying, well, he did this, he did that, this was good, this was bad. And then you'll first well, I disagree. You know, because we're still making our mind up. There is a, there is a narrative that Reagan is a, a great American president, um, which isn't shared with a lot of the outside world. You know, so and and that'd be kind of quite nice to put that within uh, that show. But then, because that presidency was lived out completely in a media landscape that we'd understand, in terms of um, you know the the saturation of kind of news, that public opinion, the opinion of the listeners, is is almost as valid. You know, so I really do want people then to then call up because we do have this little element on the site called SpeakPipe where you can click the click little red button and you can record your thoughts and feelings to, to me, which I'll then put on the show to say I was 10 when Reagan was, was president and this is how I felt, felt or whatever, or I was working in a car plant in, in Detroit, etc, etc. So absolutely. And the tone of the shows will really will change from one president to another. It will be a subtle change, but they will change. And, and it's one of the reasons why I started off actually with Nixon. Uh, number one, I wanted Dan to do Nixon. But number two, I didn't want to do this in chronological order because then I think the listeners would get um, a very distorted view as to really how the series is going to pan out. Each show is standalone and will actually be slightly different. So I've noticed that you have a new website for 10 American presidents mm -hmm. and you seem to have a pretty active Facebook group for 10 American presidents. So can you talk about how that has helped your productions? I know you just mentioned that you got Facebook group members to contribute to the Washington episode. Uh, in what other ways have you been using the website and the Facebook group to enhance the series? Yeah, so... As I kind of said before, I pose questions to the Facebook group, not always about the series and how people can actually help. But 
the people just incredibly giving and incredibly active and just very into uh, what I seem to be doing for, for the most part. So I'll say, who, who is your, who's your favourite American president? And you'll get a whole load of answers. Then who should I ask might be a little bit more kind of pertinent to be part of this series. And people just, you know, and, and on the Facebook group, they're absolutely brilliant. But then specifically with the Washington episode and also with the next one, which I think is going to be Andrew Jackson. Obviously, all the presidents up until, let's say, FDR, there's going to be a lack of um, contemporaneous recorded material, you know, very obviously. You you get a little bit with with, with Teddy Roosevelt, but, you know, anybody before that, it's not going to be there. So I've lent heavily on the Facebook group and said, would you, you know, could you find me some contemporaneous uh, newspapers? And again, you just go into Google and you can type in, I don't know, um, the, the first newspaper that talks about the Gettysburg Address. And, and it will be there. And then uh, there's this great, uh, great participant of the group called Oscar, who's over in Ireland. And Oscar is this uh, 18-year-old student and he finds these clips and then he'll say, look, Royfield, I'll, I'll type this out for you. So then he transcribes it. Then we put it onto the Facebook group and then somebody will read it, you know. So and that's just been absolutely amazing. So I've got great friends over in San Francisco or wherever in the US because you always want an American voice who then read this stuff out. They, then they post me the audio clip and, and you put it in. So the, the group has been brilliant for that. Um, and then with the with the with the website. We kind of remodeled it this week and it's still a work in progress. And I really want people to really tell me what they want to see on there. There's a little bit about uh, the narrators, there's a bit about Dan, still get to do Mike's page. But then also, dare I say, there is a big uh, donate button because these shows take a long time to do. Uh, so it's, people can go onto the website, read a little bit more about the president in question, listen to the show. Um, and then also, if they feel that they want to, they can then go and donate to the show or go onto patreon.com, and the link is also from the website, and donate a few dollars uh, a show. So um, it, what I really want to do is do a show a month. And even though it's only 10 American presidents, I'm going to do more than 10 shows, of which this is obviously a show as well so there are many other aspects of american history around its presidents which we can look at um as well as focusing in on the 10 i think most pivotal pivotal presidents in american history do you have any interest in podcasting about the upcoming american presidential elections uh yes i didn't briefly mentioned this at the start that I did do a show called Mid-Atlantic which looked at contemporary UK and US uh, politics and it's very much a compare and contrast Um, and as we are starting to gear up for the election of next year I think I should dust off Mid-Atlantic and just kind of do, do it again but maybe do a little bit more about politics and slightly less about culture um so the the simple answer is yes, though I think like most people, I'm very confused with this rep- Republican field and I'm very confused about Donald Trump. But I think yes. Donald Trump is also very confused as well. So 
Um, yes, what, but he'll, he'll, he'll be a, a great subject for if you expand to 11 American presidents. <laughs> well, though I try and stay clear of politics on my series, I think I'm not going out on a limb by saying that he will not be the next president of the United States. I don't think uh, that's an outrageous statement for me to make. <laughs> I, I hope you're correct, but if he is elected, at least there should be a lot of material for every comedian in the U.S. and around the world. Um, so have to stay positive. So Royfield, uh, can you tell us where listeners can find 10 American Presidents and your Facebook group? Okay, so the website is the, the number 10.10usp.com. On Twitter, we are 10USAP. And then the Facebook group, if you go onto Facebook and you type in 10 American Presidents, you'll find the group. Uh, and then you have to uh, apply to be a member of it. And invariably, I always say yes, because I'm nice like that. And so that's how you do it. Um, if you want to donate, um, go to the website and uh, hit the donate button, which is over on the right. And we are on Patreon.com. So if you want to subscribe and give us a couple of dollars, a few dollars a show, that'd be great. Though, you know, none of that is mandatory. I'm going to produce these things anyway. Uh, but I do have a goal that if I can get to a certain figure, I can then produce uh, one podcast uh, a month. Oh, and the other thing, what I really want to do, because uh, Obama, Barack Obama, is also going to be one of the presidents that uh, I, I'm going to follow on the show, though I'm not going to look at his presidency because uh, even if the, he is out of office by the time that I get round to doing his show, it'll be too soon for there to be proper reflection. Uh, so what I'm going to do there is just look at um, his election campaign, which is... Um, absolutely seminal in terms of his marshalling of small donors and new media, etc. So maybe, maybe, maybe I can ask the listeners to tweet uh, the President of the United States and say, have you heard of 10 American Presidents, the podcast? They would like to get you on. Um, if he's been on Mark Maron, he can be on my podcast. That's what I There reckon. you go. Well, and you know, it'd be great to get Donald Trump to narrate <laughs> you know what that is a fantastic fantastic idea yes so there we go folks let's tweet both of these two uh eminently uh eminently sensible gentlemen uh so tweet donald trump and say would you like to narrate the the, the campaign of barack obama and let's get barack obama also onto the show also August the 11th, 1965, the bloodiest riot in 40 years of America's troubled racial history begins. Los Angeles, California, the district called Watts. 34 persons die, $40 million worth of property is destroyed, almost 4,000 are arrested. The American Negro, the invisible... It is now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that 
Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. Remember that Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King. There have been some demonstrations at this early hour in downtown Chicago's Grant Park. We heard a moment ago that tear gas has been used. As the demonstrators are attempting to form a line of parade and march Senator Robert Francis Kennedy on the died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968, with Senator Kennedy. The 1960s, as we understand them, didn't really start happening until about 1965. The framework and the foundation is laid, of course, much earlier. But if you take a look at photographs of American people, you can see a change in fashion, style, and the entire culture that occurs sometime between 1964 and 1967. This quick change in American reality really is connected to the baby boom generation coming of age, the largest generation in American history. And this quick assault on the old American, we used to call them crew cut, upstanding, old fashioned, Protestant work ethic value of America happened so quickly, it was culturally destabilizing. Having the Vietnam War going on at the time and the divisiveness caused by that was like steroids added to an already dangerous mix. The civil rights revolutions going on and the marches in the streets was like more steroids added to the mix. The assassination of John F. Kennedy didn't help. The feeling that perhaps the situation with the Soviet Union once again could lead to an Armageddon. People forget and downplay that all the time now, but as someone who grew up in the tail end of that uh, era, it's hard to explain to people now how upsetting it was on an emotional level to have to do these drills in school, these duck and cover drills where you are Mr. Pop. <laughs> That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.